song's a beautiful reminder that our redemption, our hope is not in our works, but it is in Christ alone. And so it is a joy to be able to declare that with you this evening. If you have your Bible, if you will turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, which is where we will be this evening. I want to begin this evening reading to you some familiar verses um, that hopefully you are familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I can do all things through him, that's Christ, who strengthens me. Or in Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Or from Romans, and we know that for those who God love, all things will work together for good and those who are called according to his purpose. Matthew chapter 7 Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Or Matthew 7, 1, judge not, that you be not judged. All of these verses are familiar with most of us, and they are wonderful truths of Scripture. Yet these verses are also sometimes the most misquoted, twisted, misapplied Scriptures in the world there's even a, a time in which they are so marketable and become so familiar with them that as we read them, we begin to glaze over these wonderful truths of Scripture, and they're nothing more than sayings that we've heard a thousand times. Some of these Scriptures are so marketable, it's not uncommon to see them on bumper stickers, on coffee cups, or on decorations and signs. Another common one that we might see is faith, hope, and love, and I would challenge and surmise that if you went to Walmart or Hobby Lobby or Michael's or some other decoration store, you will find a sign that says faith, hope, and love. And as I mentioned, because they are so marketable, oftentimes we become so familiar with them that we don't even process or think about these truths of Scripture. We just say them rotely and routinely. We miss often the truth of these passages because they are being used out of context. Because they are so marketable and often so out of context, what we find in our cultures, they are often weaponized by non-believers against the rest of Scripture, or they are used by non-Christians, even some who profess Christ, to use them against the redeemed. For God so loved the world, God loves everyone as they are, we ought not talk about repentance. We shouldn't tell someone that they are in Sin, because if God loves everyone, because God loves the world, we should love them too. And the way in which we do this is by not talking about repentance. Or God has plans to prosper. You has been perverted by the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, and been used to say that God would bring you immense financial wealth. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what we often find is what Christ strengthens people to do is that which they want to do themselves. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these, love as defined by the world, is used to teach the supremacy of nicety, nicety, niceties. I am correct. Okay, good. The supremacy of, of niceties. I'm not saying that we should abscond from any use of scripture in our homes. I think it is good for us to, to be reminded of scripture and to reflect upon scripture in our Homes and they can serve as great reminders of God's promises. But what we must understand is that God does not give us His word that we might placate the world and make the world happy. God gives us His word that we might be transformed into the image of 
Christ, that we might be sanctified by truth, and we know and understand that his word is truth. And so with that, if you will stand and do honor to the reading of God's word, we will begin our time this evening reading 1 Thessalonians starting chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and full and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you will pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come this evening recognizing and confessing that, that often we, we read your word and it glazes over our eyes. Father, we pray this evening that you would open our eyes to see and give us ears to hear the truth of your word, that we might be conformed into the image of Christ. Father, that we might love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we might love one another out of our love for you. Father, we pray that you would conform us this evening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we saw two weeks ago, Paul begins this letter to the Thessalonians as he does most all of his others, let other letters, and that is with an expression of gratitude, with giving thanks to God for the faith of the church at Thessalonica. And what we understand is gratitude is a duty of man owed to God for who God is. Who in here would be able to take a breath if the Lord had not given it to him? Who in here could say that they have provided and worked hard for their family if it was not the Lord who gave you the ability and the skill and the opportunity to work? Or how would any of us recognize that all things come from the Lord if he had not given us eyes to see that wonderful truth? We all owe gratitude to the Lord. This is an imperative of Scripture. An imperative is a just, righteous, right command of God. We are told in Psalms, give thanks to the Lord. This is an imperative, a command of Scripture. And this imperative flows out of what is called an indicative of Scripture. That is a statement of fact. And that statement of fact is, for he is good, for steadfast love endures forever. Because God is who God is, and God does what God does, we ought to all give thanks to the Lord. And so Paul is doing that. He is giving gratitude, thanksgiving to the Lord. And as we saw last time we were together, he doesn't do so generally as often we find ourselves doing, but he does so specifically. And we begin to see what it is that he is giving thanksgiving for in verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus 
Christ. Now, before we can get into this verse, there's one thing I must address. Depending on which version of Scripture you're reading, this verse reads significantly or slightly different. The King James Version reads, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. The New American Standard Bible similarly says, Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. And then the Holman Christian Standard Bible reads it, We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then our version this evening, the English Standard Version, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we were to read those side by side, the King James Version and the New American Standard Bible are very similar, and the Holman Christian Standard Bible and the ESV are very similar. The Greek phrase, ha- the Greek has the phrase before our God and Father at the end of this verse. It immediately follows after the Lord Jesus Christ as rendered in the King James Version and the New American Standard Bible. Yet Greek scholars, commentators, and theologians disagree on the placement of before our God and Father. Some argue that Paul is using before our God as an inclusio. And if you're not certain what an inclusio is, think of it like a sandwich. But because it's God's word, it's fantastic, all of it. And so Paul mentions something at the beginning, and he mentions something at the end to to, to sandwich it and to couch what he is getting at in the middle of the verse. And so Paul begins verse 2 giving, giving thanks to God and he ends verse 3 in the Greek before our God. And so some commentators and theologians believe that, that what Paul is emphasizing is his prayer to God, further drawing our eyes to God so that the church at Thessalonica and so that we might not boast in our works. Paul is reminding them that he is praying to God for the work of the church at Thessalonica. And so before our God is a posture of prayer on behalf of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And so it is translated as it is in the English Standard Version and the Holman Christian Bible by, by attaching it to Paul's prayer, remembering constantly before our God and Father. Yet others argue that Paul's emphasis that the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of Hope in the Lord Jesus Christ is done by the Thessalonians consciously before and in the presence of God the Father. That they are consciously living before the Lord. And so it's translated as the King James Version and the New American Standard Bible do in the presence of our God and Father. And that's a lot of stuff to say that I think that the ESV translates it well, that Paul is continuing his gratitude to the Lord, that Paul's, Paul's focus here is turning our eyes to the Lord, and he continues this even in verse 4, before we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul is taking everything from verse 2 on and laying it before God and stating that it is God who gives the faith, who gives the hope, who gives the love, and he is placing us before the throne of God, and he is giving gratitude to where gratitude is due, and that is God. But however it might be translated, the content and weight of verse 3 remains the same, for we see in Scripture, whatever you do 
in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Therefore, what we need to recognize, depending on, independent of how it is translated, is that any work of faith, any labor of love, any, any steadfastness and hope is both a gift of God to us, and it is something that we do before and in the presence of God. We ought to live our lives, quorum Deo, before the face of God. When we forget that we are doing these things before the face of God, we begin to turn ourselves into prideful, boastful people thinking that we are doing these things in our own strength. And so, irregardless on where you think that ought to be placed, we must all come to a point where we recognize that the faith, hope, and love that we have is a gift for God that should lead us to gratitude before God, that our eyes aren't turned to ourselves but are turned to the Lord. And secondly, we recognize that our entire lives are lived in the presence of God, our Father. Father. And what we see in this passage and what we see in this verse taking place is Paul is extolling the church and giving gratitude to God for their faith, love, and hope. And when we say it like that, it might sound a little weird because we're more familiar with how Paul words it to to his letter to 1 Corinthians, to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So that brings us to another question. Why does the order of Corinthians differ than his order to Thessalonica. If the greatest is love, why doesn't he make a similar statement to the church at Thessalonica? And this is where understanding these verses in the historical context, I think, is beneficial and helpful for us to understand what Paul is driving at in both contexts. We understand that Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he is writing to churches who are struggling in two significantly different areas. The church at Corinth struggled with spiritual superiority. What we find at the church of Corinth is there are brothers suing brothers, that the Lord's table is being perverted with injustice. There is an emphasis on the supernatural gifts of healing tongues and prophecy. There is sexual misbehavior, which is not being called out by the brothers at Corinth. And what we see is they fail to love the Lord and they fail to love one another. And therefore, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth to remind them of their need to love the Lord and to love one another. That what they professed with their mouth was not being lived out in the way in which they interacted with each other. So Paul says that the Corinthians could have enough faith to move mountains, but if they did not have love for one another, they had nothing. And the church at Thessalonica does not struggle with loving one another like the church at Corinth did. What we see at the church of Thessalonica is they suffered great affliction because of the gospel, which led to concerns about the return of Christ. This is a theme that comes up again and again in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians are, are questions about would Christ return, when would Christ return, has Christ already returned? And there is the temptation toward apathy that is caused by affliction and persecution. And so Paul, writing his letter to Thessalonians, ends these three with an emphasis being on hope. That they could take hope that Christ would, in fact, return. That they didn't have to fear persecution and affliction because they had hope in the return of 
Christ. And so that's why when Paul gives gratitude to God, he does so for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. And prayerfully, I think what we'll see in First Thessalonians, as well as we'll see in the rest of Scripture, is that when we find one of these, true faith, true hope, and true love, the others are always present. There can be no true faith and true hope without true love for the living God. There can't be true love for the living God that doesn't work itself out in true faith and true hope in Christ. The strength of these may vary due to our sinfulness, but these three are present in every single child of God. And if all three of these, faith, hope, and love, are, are present to some varying degree in every believer, we would do well to pause and consider them this evening. So the first thing that Paul gives thanks for is for their faith. Faith is something that we've talked about on Sunday morning in previous months, but as a way of reminder, what is faith? And Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith for us. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For a long time in the modern church, faith has been presented as and thus defined as just merely a mental acknowledgement of truth. The danger with this kind of understanding of faith, that, that faith, all faith is, is just saying, yes, I see that, I believe it, and I agree with it, is that it is deceptively close to true faith, yet it remains by itself counterfeit. This kind of faith, just a mental acknowledgement of truth, I believe that Satan has has, through his subtleties, presented to men and to the church for centuries. And I think the way we can see true faith from, from, from counterfeit faith is by going to the Word of God and seeing what does God's Word show us that true faith is and what is counterfeit faith. And what we see in Scripture is that, that the faith of the saints is that which knows that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. This is more than just a mental ascent to that truth that, that I've died to my sins and Christ lives in me. But it is a spiritual reality for the child of God. That we are no longer our own, but we belong to Christ. And our lives now lived are in and through Christ. We no longer live in light of the old man, but we live in light of the new man. We no longer live under the weight of the first Adam, but we live in light of the second Adam. These are spiritual realities for those who are in Christ. Yet there's the counterfeit faith of the devils that we see in James chapter 2. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons can acknowledge, hey, that's true, but that's not redeeming faith. There's a faith which cannot perish, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And there's a counterfeit faith that when the time of temptation comes, it falls away. We see this in Luke chapter 8. When the word of God falls on rocky, stony ground, it cannot take root. And when the time of trial comes, that faith falls away. There's a counterfeit faith that the world overcomes, like Demas, who is a companion of Paul. And Paul, writing to Timothy, writes... Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And in Scripture, we never see of his restoration, so we're left to assume that his faith is false and that when he came up against the world, the world overcame him because his faith 
was counterfeit. That there is true faith which overcomes the world. We see this in 1 John chapter 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. There's the dead and idle counterfeit faith. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then there is a lively faith which leads to works. We see in Galatians 5, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So we must distinguish and discern the difference between true faith and counterfeit faith that merely agrees that Jesus is the Son of God and discern and distinguish that from true, genuine faith that rests in the promises of God. And what we need to understand is that the true faith is the grace of God which makes Christ ours and His benefits. True faith is not obtainable by the work of fallen men. Fallen men might verbally agree with truth, but fallen men cannot grasp a hold of redeeming faith. Fallen men cannot lay hold of Christ apart from it being a gift from God. We see this in Ephesians. For by, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Far too often we take gift of God and we apply it to God's grace, which is a gift. And it's a wonderful gift. But the thing that immediately follows is our faith. And what we must understand is that, that faith itself is a gift of God. Faith is a gift to the sinner. And it is the medium by which we lay hold of Christ and the work of Christ. And it becomes our own. What we see in Hebrews 11 is that for without faith it is impossible to please God. Because we are rebellious sinners. We deny God. We hate God. We live in open rebellion. We are enmity with God, we refuse Him. And it's not until we are given faith to see truth, to know truth, to understand truth, to grab a hold of the work of Christ and to make it our own that we come to redeeming faith. And of this kind of faith, John Calvin writes, faith is a sure persuasion of the truth of God which can neither lie nor deceive. It's almost the opposite of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 in our Sin, we suppress the truth of God. We, we, we see that God exists. We know that God exists. No man can deny that God exists, yet we hate God and we hate truth and we suppress it. But having been given faith by God, we are persuaded of the truth of His Word. And the true faith, that gift of God, comes from hearing. Romans 10, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Is in hearing the word of God proclaimed that God brings us from death to life and he gives us faith to believe that word which is proclaimed to us. We cannot say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that be a true reality for us until, Christ, until God first gives us faith to believe that which we are being told. And so faith ultimately comes full circle because faith is the assurance of things hope for and what is it that we hope for we hope in the promises of God as revealed in his word promises such that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life and so we're given assurance by faith that we are the ones who Christ came to save so faith is a gift of God by which we grab hold of Christ and the works of Christ and they become our own 
The second thing that Paul gives thanks for in this verse is for their love. Love is that virtue which is most tenaciously fought against, twisted, distorted, and abused by the lost and dying world. The the, the world would have us believe that if we are to love God, then we must love everyone as he does. And and in their mind, how does God love everyone? He, He loves everyone without distinction. He loves everyone regardless of who they are, regardless of how they live. Therefore, we ought to not call out sin. We all make mistakes. We all do things that displeases God. So the best thing we can do if we love God and we love others as God loves them is just to give them their space. If we love our neighbors, then we'll accept them as they are because we'll understand that God created them that way and they can't help living a lifestyle that they are living. Instead of speaking to them in truth, we must just be nice to them. If we're not just nice and accepting, how are they to ever believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? If we love God, then what we do is we ask people, do you really want to go to hell? If you don't want to go to hell, do you want to go to heaven? And if the answer is yes, here, repeat after me. And if you repeat after me, I'll tell you for the rest of your life that you've been saved, even if your life gives evidence to the contrary. What we see in our world and what we see, I think, sadly, in much of the churches, love has been replaced with niceties and with what is considered to be tolerance. Yet, that is not love as defined by Scripture. In that familiar passage in Matthew we read, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. And what we see in this passage is that true love first is directed toward God and it consumes all of who we are. We're to love God with all our mind, soul, or all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. A love directed towards God loves all of who God is. As we've seen these past few Sundays, and it has been wonderful walking through the attributes of God, we love the glorious God. We love the loving God. We love the merciful God. We love a just, righteous, holy, living God. When we say as God reveals himself in the pages of Scripture, he does so that we might see him as he is and we might love him for who he is. And our love for God will only be as deep as our knowledge of him is. If our knowledge of who God is is shallow, then what we have to understand is that our love for God will be shallow. If our love for God is shallow, then our worship for God will be shallow. If our love for God is shallow, then our love for our neighbor will be shallow. And in this way, love deepens our faith because our love for God drives us to the pages of Scripture as we're reading scripture and God is revealing himself to us and he is making promises to us and we're, we're holding on to those in faith, we're drawn in to love God more. And then secondly, what we see in this passage is that true love directed toward God overflows onto our neighbor. We cannot rightly love our neighbor if we do not rightly love God first. 
We might be kind to our neighbor. We might be on earthly terms good to our neighbor. We might mow our neighbor's lawn, but we do not love our neighbor if we do not have faith to love God first. If we have not been given faith to love God, then we cannot love our neighbor as we ought to. And how is it that we are to love our neighbor? We're to love our neighbor in a way that points them back to the God in which we love. Our love for God drives everything that we do. All of our speech, all of our thought, all of our interactions with our neighbor are done in such a way that our neighbor can see who this God is that has completely redeemed and changed us. And as we grow in truth and we live out that truth, we show others the truth of how glorious God is. This is Paul's express prayer to the church at Philippi. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What Paul is writing to the church at Philippi is our love for God grows and grows and grows as our knowledge of him does. And as we grow in knowledge and discernment, it's not so that we can sit in ivory towers and write true things about God. Our knowledge and discernment and our love for God grow in such a way that we might approve that which is excellent. That is, we love what God loves and we hate what God hates. Contrary to what we hear in the world and in much of the modern church, true love for God and neighbor cannot relish and find enjoyment in sin. True love for God and true love for neighbor can't overlook sin and say it's not that big of a deal because when we truly love God and in such a way that it overflows and we love our neighbor, we understand that God hates sin. And we must tell our neighbor that that is sin and it is abhorred by a holy, righteous God and then we proclaim the truth to them. It's unloving to hide the truth of sin, but it is loving when we call sin what it is, rebellion against God. And we proclaim the gospel. And we call men and women to repent of their sins and to have place their, place their trust in Christ for redemption. And that redemption, that promised glorification, leads us to Paul's last point of gratitude in this verse. Paul is thankful for their steadfastness of hope. And for hope, we look again to Hebrews 11 Verse 1, now faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hope is so intertwined with faith that you can't have hope without first having faith. Without faith, without assurance of the promises of God, there can be no hope in the promises of God. If we do not have faith in the promise that Christ will return, we cannot have any hope that Christ will return. This is what Paul writes later in this letter in 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul goes on to write to them the promises of God in Scripture of the return of Christ. Paul doesn't offer false hope because false hope is no hope. The hope he encourages rests surely and foundationally upon the promises of God. And our hope can be placed in no other place. John Calvin, in describing the relationship between faith and hope, helpfully notes, Hope is nothing else than the expectation of the things that faith has believed to be truly promised by God. 
Thus, faith believes God to be truthful. Hope expects that he will show his veracity at the opportune time. Faith believes God to be our Father. Hope expects he will always act as such towards us. Faith believes eternal life to be given to us. Hope expects that it shall be revealed at some time. Faith is the foundation on which hope rests, and hope nourishes and maintains faith. Because no one can expect and hope anything from God except he or she will have first believed his promises. On the other hand, it is necessary that our feeble faith be sustained, lest we grow weary and fail. So patient hope and expectation keep faith. Faith strengthens our hope as we're reminded of the promises of God in the pages of Scripture. And hope refreshes our faith in times of affliction and doubt when we're not 100% certain is God going to keep His word. We hope and the assurance of our faith that God will do all that he has said he will do. And then Paul finishes this verse by pointing us to the, to the direction of true faith, true hope, and true love. And that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. If we place our faith in anything else than Jesus Christ, our faith is false. This is the admonishment that Paul gives to the church at Galatia. False teachers had come in and said, if you want to... Believe in Christ. If you want to be redeemed, you first have to be a Jew. That is, you have to be circumcised. You have to conform to our laws in order to, for, to, to, to then be redeemed. Thus, the church at Galatia is encouraged to rest their faith in the works of their hands instead of the work of Christ on the cross. And this is not a problem for just the church at Galatia, but it has been a problem for the church since the beginning. That men will seek to place their works on top of the work of Christ. If we were to be asked, how do you know that you are saved? And our response is anything other than by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which are gifts of God, that he has born us anew by the Holy Spirit, then we are placing our faith in something else. Sadly, one of the most common things I hear as a pastor when I, when I talk to someone about their salvation is they say, yeah, I went and I sat at a church and I heard a man speak from a pulpit. Or I went to a VBS that my parents sent me to because they needed a babysitter for the week. And, and at the end of the message, at the end of the program, uh, th there was an invitation. And just as I am was playing and, and I walked forward and I said, I, I want to be saved. And so the man said, well, just repeat after me. And then after I repeated it, I was saved and I've been saved ever since. Now God can strike straight with crooked sticks and God can use broken systems to bring about the redemption of men. But what the modern church has taught people is to have faith in the works of a decision. To have faith in the works of a prayer. That you can live your life in complete rebellion to God as long as you can point back to a decision that you Made And what we teach people is to have faith in what they have done and not in the work of Christ. Yet true faith that works to glorify God is found in Jesus Christ alone. Anything else is counterfeit faith. And then our love for God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our love for our neighbor is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Many are tempted to twist the word of God, neglect the word of God, abuse the word of God so that they might be loved and admired by the world. Whether it be out of fear or out of a, out of a desire for self-gain, when, when the world comes up against the word of the God, the word of God is abandoned. 
And love that is not in Jesus Christ will always be selfish. For you to truly, as a church, labor in love. To love the Lord and to love each other such that the world knows we belong to Christ and our love must be rooted in Christ. For when our love is rooted in Christ, we can't focus on ourselves. We can't focus on our desires and our preferences when our, when our focus is on the Lord, Jesus Christ. We see so many fights in the church about the style of music or the paint on the walls or, or the parking in the parking lot. What we often find is men who love their preferences more than they love their Lord, Jesus Christ. And men that love themselves more than they love Christ cannot and will not love Christ and love their brother as they ought. And then our true hope must ultimately be in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Because we can't place our hope in our morality, in our political system, in the kingdoms of this world, or even in each other, because they will always fail because they are all fallen. My heart breaks to see churches driven by these, by, by placing their hope in these systems. And I'm not saying that we ought not participate. We should participate in politics. We should speak the truth of the gospel in the realms that God has placed us in, in ways that glorify God. But what we see so often are people who place their hope in the systems of this world, and then it affects how they understand God and His Word. If we are to remain steadfast in our hope, then our hope has to be in Jesus Christ alone. Our hope is not in the fa- our hope is not in America becoming a utopia, but that Christ will return and will reign for all eternity. Our hope is that we will be glorified and in His presence for all of eternity. As we see in Revelation, our hope is that He will be our God, that, that He will be our God, and and, he, and we will be His people. And so, if we don't first understand. That, that, that faith, love, and hope are gifts of God in Jesus Christ, then when Paul talks about the work of faith and the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope, what ultimately happens is those become legalistic systems for how we ought to live our lives. And so before we can even begin to talk about what are those things, we must first understand and grasp that the faith that we have been given, that, that, that the love that we have for God and, and one another, that the hope and the return of Christ are gifts from God the Father to the redeemed. If you will pray with me. Lord, I pray that we would be ever conscious that our faith is a gift from you. Without which we would not desire to love you at all. Yet we love you because you first loved us and you demonstrated your love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, you, you have promised that having foreknown us, that you have predestined your people and those whom you have chosen from before the foundation of the world for redemption you have called. And that those you call, you do not try to justify, but you in fact do justify through the blood of Christ. And so we find our hope now awaiting that promise that with all those, ju- that with all those you justify, you glorify. Lord, it is for this that we wait expectantly with great anticipation the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This time, Brother Cam, will you come and lead us in a time of corporate prayer?